Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology. You recall that last Lord's Day, we entered into a new section of our study, the doctrine of sin and the fall of man. And in that lesson, we highlighted something that the divines remind us of in their first paragraph in chapter 6. Today's lesson is kind of an extension of that. There they wrote, Our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. Now, I don't know the motivation for why these men wrote what they did here, but I find it extremely interest, interesting that the very first thing that they tell us about the fall of man and of sin is that God was pleased with their fall. And mind you, he wasn't pleased with the sin itself. Remember, God is not the author of sin, nor is he the approver of sin. But he was pleased in that the sin was decreed by him to take place according to his wise and holy counsel in order to bring about a greater purpose, namely the glorification of himself. It's as if the divines are telling us, hey, don't get off track when we get into this new section. Don't forget the big picture. Don't let this story about the fall of man lead you into all sorts of speculative ideas about sin and you end up a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian or an Arminian. God did not change. God was not asleep. God did not relinquish his power or his sovereignty in between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And neither Adam nor Satan stumbled upon some weakness in his plan. Satan didn't outsmart God. I mean, how in the world, having gone through all the doctrines that we've gone through, especially the doctrine of God and his eternal decree, having looked at his attributes of his nature and of his decree, could we even begin to entertain such foolish nonsense? Either God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, or he's not. Either God ordained whatsoever comes to pass, having made all things out of nothing by the word of his power, or he didn't. Either God providentially preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions, or he doesn't. So are we going to just trash 30 weeks of study and all the scriptures we have looked at thus far because we can't quite figure out how this fits in the story? And look, it would be understandable if we didn't have any other information. You know, I think about what it would have been like to be a bystander there with Joseph and his brothers. You know, his brothers throw him into a pit. They're jealous. They don't like him. They want to get rid of him. They throw him in the pit. They leave him for dead. And then they eventually pull him out only to sell him off into slavery. And imagine if you were there watching that. That'd be a horrible thing to witness. You wouldn't like it. It'd keep you up at night. But imagine if you witnessed the same thing knowing what was going to come about as a result. You're like, man, if you guys only knew. <laughs> where this is going. This guy that you wanted to kill and just sold off slavery is about to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And then think of what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. The parallel there, obvious parallel, the story of Joseph. 
Jesus was betrayed by his kinsmen. They put him to death. We've gotten rid of him. Only for him to resurrect from the tomb. To ascend to the Father's right hand. And now he rules all heaven and earth. All authority. And thus we see a passage like the one in Hebrews 12 too. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, it didn't end at the cross. The cross was a means to an end. And it is that end that the writer of Hebrews describes as joy. It pleased God that our first parents sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. Why? Not because the sin itself was good, but because in his most wise and holy counsel, this act of rebellion was a means to an end. And that end being that God would be glorified in his holiness, his power, his wisdom, his justice, his wrath, his goodness, his truth and grace. And we know this because we have his word. We're not just ignorant bystanders. And so we don't have to fret. We don't have to speculate and come up with silly excuses like, well, maybe God didn't know what Adam was going to do. Or well, maybe he knew, but he knew it because he looked into the future and he learned about it. See, these are the dangerous theories you get caught up in when you lose sight of the bigger picture by divorcing this doctrine from all the other doctrines. So we have to be careful and we must be reminded. So we read in our confession that our first parents sinned in eating the forbidden fruit and that none of this took God by surprise, nor did it get us off of the plan, the track. In fact, it was necessary and essential to God's plan. And chapter 6 of the confession is going to go on and talk about the effects of the sin and how we as Adam and Eve's descendants relate to it. And we'll get to that in later lessons. However, before we do that, I want to talk a little bit today about the arrangement that God made with man in the first place, namely the covenant of life, or sometimes referred to as the covenant of works. Now, the confession is not going to explicitly mention this until chapter 7, but if you look at the catechisms, they dive right into it at this point, at least to some degree. And I think they do that in order to set a context for us for Adam and Eve's fall and how it relates to you and I as their descendants. So while we're not going to get into a full-orb teaching of covenant theology in this section, we'll start unraveling that in our next section, we need to at least have a basic understanding of the original arrangement that God made with Adam and Eve prior to their fall. Also, it's this idea of covenant that's going to help us transition from our previous section on providence to this new section of doctrine of sin. And here's why I say that. If you recall in the previous section, Pastor JP spoke about the providence of God wherein he upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, all their actions, and all things from the greatest even to the least, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, so that in the end he would be praised for the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's providence. And this, along with God's work of creating, is how God executes his eternal decree. Well, now, notice the language used in both, the catechism, in both catechisms when the divines get to this point of talking about Adam and Eve in the garden. 
the larger catechism asks question 20, what was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created? Notice the words, what was the providence of God? In other words, and again, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but this is important. Notice that as we move into the story of origins, into the story of our first parents and their fall into sin, it's all connected with what we looked at in the previous section on providence. In other words, you could ask the question this way. What was the special act that God did with our first parents whereby God preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions in order to bring about the purpose of God in glorifying his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy? So notice what I did there. All I did was I took the word providence and substituted it for its definition and expanded the question. And when you do it that way, notice it drives home the point. God was very intentional and precise in how he arranged the garden and how he arranged this, this relationship with Adam and Eve in order to accomplish his purpose. And so the details of that arrangement are going to play a very important role when we get down the road in our study, especially when we come to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what are those details? Well, the larger catechism answers the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion and ordaining marriage for his help, affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath, entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual per obedience, in which the tree of life was a pledge and forbid forbidding to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. The Shorter Catechism puts it simply this way. When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Now, since this is an intro to systematic theology, we're going to stick with the Shorter Catechism. But notice what's highlighted here in this answer. God entered into a covenant of life with man. Now, I want to touch on the what of this covenant briefly, and then the why. First, the what. In introducing the concept of covenant, our confession tells us that the distance between God and man is so great that in order for us to have any fruition of God as our blessedness and reward, God voluntarily condescends to us by way of covenant. So if you think about it, the covenant is the means by which God accommodates and reveals himself to us. The confession goes on to call this initial covenant, the covenant of works. Now, don't let that language scare you. Keep in mind, this covenant's been called different things. Uh, it's been called covenant creation, covenant life, covenant works, the Adamic covenant, the, the Adenic covenant. It's called the covenant of life because life was held out as a promise to Adam. And it's called the covenant of works because works, that is Adam's obedience, was the means by which Adam would attain this promise of life. And so different names are given to it to emphasize different aspects of this covenant. 
But when we talk about the covenant works, don't let that throw you off. We're not, we're not saying that there was, this was some sort of works-based salvation on Adam's part. Because remember, this covenant was established before he fell into sin. Okay, he's innocent. He's righteous at this point. There's no salvation for him to work. There's, there's no uh, salvation from sin for him to earn. And so this work of obedience here, these works are not in order to get saved, but in order to maintain the life he was given. So in short, God promises to Adam and his descendants continual life upon perfect obedience. This life would consist of natural, spiritual, and eternal life. Physical death, that is the separation of soul and body, would not be experienced by Adam. Union with God would continue. And in an immutable, perfect, and eternal happiness, Adam will remain in communion with God, and that would be his reward. Now, there are many people out there, even some who go by the name Reformed, who argue that no such covenant existed in Genesis, in the garden. And one of the primary objections is that Genesis 2 does not mention the word covenant. The Hebrew word for covenant, which is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, does not occur once in this chapter, and so it is argued there was no covenant. Well, that's just a very bad argument. First, the absence of a label does not mean that the concept or idea is absent. For example, nowhere in the Bible do we have the word Trinity. But the idea, the concept of Trinity is taught all throughout Scripture. And perhaps another more relevant example is the covenant God made with David. When you read David's life in real time, so to speak, which we're going to be there very soon in 2 Samuel 6 and 7, you read that after David had expressed a desire to build God a temple, God said that he would be the one to make a house for David and would establish the throne of David's son forever. And the word covenant is nowhere used in that story. Yet Psalm 89.3 does use that word in reference to 2 Samuel 7. There it says, You have said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So there is quoting the words of 2 Samuel and saying that this is God establishing a covenant with David. So the concept of covenant is there, even though the label covenant is not found in 2 Samuel 7. But we see the same thing happening with Genesis 2. Hosea, speaking of his generation, says in Hosea 6-7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now that would certainly be a strange thing to say if Adam wasn't in a covenant. It would make any sense. Secondly, all the elements of a covenant are present there in the garden. The parties to the covenant are named. It's typical of covenant to go through a history of the, the king and his relationship to his servants. And there we see that in Genesis 1 and 2, the whole history of God in relation to man. There are promises that are given. There are demands that are made. There's a law that's established. And there are sanctions that are threatened. And then thirdly, perhaps most importantly, we know that a covenant was made between Adam and God because of the inferences made from the work of Christ, who in 1 Corinthians 15 is called the last 
or second Adam. This parallel between Adam and Christ is most notably drawn out by the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, where Adam is called a type of Christ. And so this gets to the why of the covenant. Notice that God establishes a covenant here in the beginning because the covenant is the structure that God uses to help us understand how his decree is going to unfold. And where is that eternal decree heading? It's heading to Christ. R.C. Sproul makes this connection here. He writes, Beyond the negative fulfillment of the covenant of works and taking the punishment due those who disobey it, Jesus offers also the positive dimension that is vital to our redemption. He wins the blessing of the covenant of works on all of the progeny of Adam who put their trust in Jesus. Where Adam was the covenant breaker, Jesus is the covenant keeper. Where Adam failed to gain the blessedness of the tree of life, Christ wins that blessedness by his obedience, which blessedness he provides for those who put their trust in him. In this work of fulfilling the covenant for us in our stead, theology speaks of the active obedience of Christ. That is, Christ's redeeming work includes not only his death, but also his life. His life of perfect obedience becomes the sole ground of our justification. It is his perfect righteousness gained via his perfect obedience that is imputed to all who put their trust in him. Therefore, Christ's work of active obedience is absolutely essential to the justification of anyone. And without Christ's active obedience to the covenant of works, there is no reason for imputation. There is no ground for justification. If we take away the covenant of works, we take away the active obedience of Jesus. If we take away the active obedience of Jesus, we take away the imputation of his righteousness to us. If we take away the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, we take away justification by faith alone. And if we take justification by faith alone away, we take away the gospel, and we are left in our sins. We are left as the miserable sons of Adam who can only look forward to feeling the full measure of God's curse upon us for our own disobedience. It is the obedience of Christ that is the ground of our salvation, both in his passive obedience on the cross and his active obedience in his life, and all of this is inseparably, inseparably related to the biblical understanding of Jesus as the new Adam, Romans 5, who succeeded where the original Adam failed, who prevailed where the original, what the original Adam lost. There is nothing less in our salvation than our salvation at stake in this issue. I think that's very well stated by Sproul. I'll just add to it. It's not only our salvation that it's at stake, but this end game that we've been talking about all along is at stake, for which our salvation serves the purpose of the glorification of God in his holiness, power, wisdom, justice, wrath, goodness, truth, and grace. So this covenantal structure that we see here in the garden is what's setting us up for that purpose. That's why it's so important. I want to close with one more quote from Robert Latham in his work on the Westminster Assembly. Here he's commenting on the parallel between Adam and Christ in Romans 5, and he writes, there Paul talks of two ages and two solidaric groups headed by Adam and Christ respectively. 
The first Adam, by his one act of disobedience, plunged the entire race into sin and death, since he was the head of all his posterity. On the other hand, the second man, Christ, by his obedience, has brought righteousness and life to all with whom he is in solidarity. His actions have reversed the effects of the fall, with plenty of room to spare. His life was one of testing and temptation from which he emerged obedient. And in turn, he endured the penalty of sin, death on the cross. Following his obedience to God's law and his enduring of its curse on our behalf, he was raised from the dead and given eternal life. His obedient righteousness and everlasting life are granted to all who belong to him by the grace of God through faith and the connection between the pre-fall condition of Adam and the atonement by Christ is therefore clear. The former is an entailment of the latter, end quote. Then Latham would go on to make this important observation that for their part, he says, opponents of the pre-fall covenant of works have often opposed any form of penal substitutionary doctrine of the atonement. I just think that's fascinating. Notice that both Latham and Sproul too, and he, he I didn't quote that part of it from Sproul, but they're both warning us that if you deny something here in Genesis 1 and 2, Concerning the covenant works, this has led many to the denial of another extremely important doctrine, and that of the atonement. When we get down further down the road in our study, why? Because these men have lost sight of the big picture. These men have either either they forgot or they have never understood that this their sin God was pleased, according to His wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed it to order it to his own glory, which culminates in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the means by which God brings this to pass. And he does this through the structure of a covenant. Well, I am out of time, but I hope that you're starting to see the bigger picture here, the connections that we're making. And Lord willing, as we continue on with this in mind, with this covenant structure in mind, uh, as we go on to consider the nature and effects of Adam's sin, that we always keep it within that framework so that we never lose sight of where all this is going.